Listeners, we want to thank our supporters on Patreon. That is Matt, Nick, Justin, and Sarah. Thank you for your money. We are quite enjoying it. And if others of you would like to give us money, we will also take it because we like money, but also we're going to use it for good stuff soon. Also on Patreon now, we have different tiers. So we invite you to go over to patreon.com slash W-T-H-I-A-P and check out all of the tiers that we have available for you to join in on. Most people I think are going to love that $5 tier, but uh, there's a chance to get fun cards on other tiers. So that's nice. I like cards. Cards are good. That's all I have for this ad. So thanks everybody. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, go over to patreon.com slash WTHIAP and support us. Thanks very much. Hello. Hello. How you doing? Making it. Making it, making it. You? Doing all right. Also making it. (laughs) Baking it till I make it. Best way to to do it. Existential philosophy 101. pastor a podcast about life and set apart ministry each week we sit down to discuss our experiences and challenges in small town parish ministry and in phd work and ask others to join us as we try to figure out what the hell it is that pastors do and how to do it as best we can Listeners, this week we have a full room of people on the podcast for a very special episode of What the Hell is a Pastor? Uh, We, of course, have Ethan and myself. We also have Ian on the call, and we have Tom Herman's Webster returning and a special new guest, J.J. Warren. We're excited to have all of you here. Um, Tom and J.J., do you want to reintroduce yourself in the case of Tom in just a couple of words, and then J.J., in as much information as you want to share, do you want to introduce who you are and uh, what you do in Methodism for those who don't know. This is Tom Herman's Webster. It's really good to be back with all of you. Um, A little bit of update since last time I was here. Uh, I'm still at Boston University, still doing my PhD, working on my dissertation. Um, But beginning this fall, I will be the Assistant Professor of United Methodist Studies at Pacific School of Religion in Berkeley, California. So those of you on the West Coast, um, come do some theological education at Pacific School of Religion and the Graduate Theological Union and take my class. That's so exciting. We are very excited for you. JJ, introduce yourself. Well, hello, everybody. It is good to be, you know, you're taking my podcast virginity here. I don't think I've actually ever done a podcast or said virginity. So here we go. This is a first. (laughs) You really have never done a podcast before? You've never said the word virginity before? (laughs) Not on a podcast, (laughs) which I guess doesn't account for much since this is my first one. Um, But I am, you know, so excited to be here. Love the title of this show and uh, love all of you. 
Um, what do I do in Methodism? That's a really great question that I don't think there's an answer for. Um, but essentially, I get to go around in a pretty pink sport coat to random churches all over the globe and talk about why we as the Methodist Church um, should be affirming of queer people and how we're going to reclaim our church, which, by the way, is a pretty catchy title of a new book out there um, called Reclaiming Church, a call to action for religious rejects by this J.J. Warren guy. And that's essentially what I do. So it's great it's, to be here. It's, we're so glad to have you. Is your book available for pre-order or is it out in the world already? It is out in the world. And this is a secret drop. The uh, audio book produced by Christian Audio. So like doing a queer book, Christian Audio, I was very surprised. <laughs> uh, comes out in next week. That's exciting. That's when this podcast will actually drop. So we will put in links. It'll be great. Oh. Ethan, I don't think I've met you. No, I don't think so. It's a pleasure to meet you, JJ. I have a story about you that you that's not really about you, but it's about you from, from the 2019 General Conference. So I was there. I was in the stands uh, heckling the crowd. Um, Good. Like uh, Statler and he, Waldorf. The he, he and his friends, like, literally, like, the night before, walked around and did an exorcism. I did. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> my, my buddies and I exercised the the... Thing, but it did. It, you know, it's maybe it worked. I don't know. I mean, the um, St. Louis Rams played there, so lots of losses needed to be actually. That's, that's true. <laughs> yeah. That's true. Yeah. But uh, I, I was a pastor at the time in Central Pennsylvania. I'm not a pastor anymore. And um, when when we got back, when the conference was over, I was uh, sitting with uh, one of the um, kind of. Uh, um, matriarchs of, of the church that I served and it's had this really incredible journey of, you know, trying to understand LGBTQ folks and try to understand how that fits in with her faith and as a practicing United Methodist. And I was really lucky to be kind of with her for three years, kind of walking through that. And uh, I was in her house and she had like a, she's like in her 70s, she has like her iPad and she was watching uh, videos of your speeches at the general conference. And, and I was, and she was like, have you ever heard of this, of this young man, JJ Warren? And I was like, I have, I saw, I was there, like <laughs> I watched it all. Happen. I did the exorcism. Yeah, 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 I did yeah. the exorcism. And, uh, and I was like, what do you think about, about JJ? What do you think about? what what these videos represent to you and and uh carol was like well i think that uh uh any congregation would be immeasurably lucky to have a young man like jj as their pastor <laughs> and that's that's a huge like like that's the first time in 75 years of her being alive that i think she could have said something like that and meant it. wow that's wow. a big deal. So mm -hmm. when I found out that I got to talk to you today, I was like, well, I got to tell, I got to tell JJ Warren that story. Cause she did it. She was like, anybody, anybody would be, you know, and we talked a little bit longer and she was just like, mm -hmm. if you can't, if you can't watch JJ Warren, you know, deliver that word that, that he did and not come to the conclusion that, wow, we need people like that as pastors, then we're in trouble. And I'm like, think you're probably right. And so that's my, that's my story. Thanks for sharing that. I love that story. I'm glad. Yeah.
Well, good. Um, so the reason that we have this brain trust gathered is uh, for, we haven't talked a lot about Methodism on the podcast recently, ever since I stopped actively serving as a pastor. Um, Cause it's just nice to be free of it sometimes, um, but it never, it never truly leaves us. So uh, for those who don't know out in the world who listen to our podcast, uh, the general conference that had been a big source of angst for all of us was delayed because of COVID. It's been delayed again, and that has uh, caused a little bit of a challenge for candidates who were elected as, as lay delegates to go to general conference and now probably wanted to move forward with their ordination. And these three brilliant people, Ian and Tom and JJ, uh, wrote a letter to the Commission on the General Conference pointing out that maybe we should do something about this. And so I want y'all to, um, and y'all can popcorn around, whoever wants to explain and start, feel free to jump in, explain why this letter was necessary, what you wrote in the letter, and uh, what happened after you gave it to the Commission on the General Conference. So I guess I can, uh, this is Tom, I guess I can start with a little uh, just structural background that would be helpful for the letter uh, before we talk about the letter itself. So the General Conference of the United Methodist Church is the uh, official voice of the United Methodist Church. It's where policy decisions for the denomination get made every four years. And uh, those policies range from uh, how we invest our tithing and our, uh, our gifts uh, financially um, to how people are supposed to interact with committees, how pastors and lay people are supposed to interact with committees in local churches, um, to how colleges and uh, campus ministries and hospitals all can do the work of God. Um, one of the really important markers of the General Conference is that it is uh, it is conducted by laity and clergy together. According to the Book of Discipline of the United Methodist Church, the General Conference shall be composed of equal numbers of clergy delegates and lay delegates. That means that annual conferences, when they elect their delegates to General Conference, and delegate is important because they're not representatives, they're not there to vote on behalf of a constituency, they are there to engage with other United Methodists to make decisions of their own accord. Um, but when annual conferences select delegates to go to general conference, they are to select laity out of the laity of the uh, annual conference, and they're to select clergy in full connection. So ordained deacons and ordained elders um, that are in good standing and in what is called full connection with an annual conference. Those people are supposed to be one-to-one. Uh, -one. So if my annual conference in North Alabama gets to send four clergy to general conference, that means they get to send four laity also. I, so that, I, I like that you brought up that delegate part of it, that they're not representatives, because um, I had never thought of that before. And I think that, um, I don't know that that factored into your letter at all or, or into the considerations of it, but I think that's an important nuance for people to know going forward. So, so why did y'all end up writing, what, what prompted you to say, hey, maybe the commission on the general conference needs to rethink or, um, or just needs to give us an answer on, what it, on who can serve as a delegate? Like, how did y'all come up with, with this? 
So I know JJ has a very personal connection to this. So uh, it'd be great to hear his story uh, and why this relates to him. Um, but uh, in the history of uh, United Methodism, um, General Conference has never been postponed. And um, the, that means that when a annual conference elects, uh, especially an annual conference in the United States, elects its uh, delegation at the annual conference session before the general conference. Um, a lay person is going to remain a lay person for those, those 10 months, right? Uh, you might have a certified candidate for ministry um, be uh, elected as a delegate and um, that uh, certified candidate for ministry could the fall, like could the year of general conference go before the board of ordained ministry for their uh, provisional exams and pass their provisional exams. But until the annual conference meets, which the annual conference always meets after the general conference um, on general conference years um, in the US, um, then uh, that that person who is expects to be commissioned remains a lay person until the clergy of that annual conference uh, vote and approve them. Um, that gets tricky when general conference gets postponed. And it was a challenge when general conference was postponed one year. We, there were uh, lay delegates who were caught in this limbo of, well, I'm a certified candidate. I'm expecting to go before boom and get commissioned in 2020. Uh, what, what happens now? And then now that it's, um, extended even further into 2022, um, we're, we're seeing even more of that happen. Um, no, one, no one anticipated um, when they were elected as a lay person, as a certified candidate for ministry, that um, general conference would be postponed two years and that they wouldn't be able to uh, fill out their, their service. Yeah, so this isn't uh, like us liberals trying to be sneaky and get like extra delegates or keep the delegates that we wanted or anything. This is uh, this is just a practical matter of people move forward in the in the candidacy process and um, and you got to deal with that. JJ, what's your connection to this? Yeah, and you know this it really all started last year about this time. Uh, the Commission on General Conference had put out their announcement that they were postponing General Conference because of COVID and that they were reconsidering dates. And so four other young people, Anne Jacob, Jessica Vittorio, Alejandra Salimi, Carlene Johnson, and myself um, got together and we wrote the Young People's Petition, which went on Facebook and within 24 hours got thousands of signatures from United Methodists around the globe um, saying that, you know, as young people at a general conference with a record number of young delegates, uh, we would be disproportionately affected by a general conference being proposed at the very beginning of the academic calendar, at least in the, in the West and during some academic calendars in other countries. So, I mean, it was one year ago around this time that we said, this just isn't right. And so we got those signatures and we sent that petition to the commission on the general conference. 
Um, and because we are angsty young people, we also sent it to the Council of Bishops uh, and um, got in on their meeting when the Council of Bishops met um, and the young people's petition was put onto the Council of Bishops docket. So they voted as a council to recommend our petition to the commission on the general conference, which I mean is just huge. I mean, I give the bishops a lot of flack. Um, I know that. And, and but I also, it's because I believe in their role so much and because I, I, I believe in the potential that they have. And so for the bishops, you know, to take a stand and say, we wanna support the young people people. It felt like, you know, a really great step forward. But then we met with the commission on the general conference. And as polite as the commission members are, um, they, it was not clear. And we had been in contact with at least five members of the commission. None of them could give us a clear answer as to whether the contracts had been signed for a postponed conference. No one had a clear answer if those deliberations were done. And so when we had been invited to speak, it wasn't clear, you know, bringing our petition to the commission, whether we were actually influencing the decision that wasn't made yet, or whether they had made a decision, which happened to be the case, and that we were just there to be heard, which, you know, we were being heard by the commission, and yet also a decision had already been made. Right. Yeah. That's so delightful. I'm so glad that that is how our our polity functions. It's a, people who listen to our podcast know that we are pretty sassy toward the UMC at this moment, um, and <laughs> and that's for a million different reasons. So it's it's nice to have you come on, JJ, and be like, these people were very polite to us. They ignored, but they're very polite. Like you're just very optimistic about a lot of things that we have gone way to the side of pessimism about. So. Um, so the letter that y'all sent to the Commission on the General Conference this time around, what was in that letter and uh, how did, did, it, did it turn out any different this time? I'll give the background if then Tom or Ian wants to give the content, um, the polity wizards. So I, I do not have that gift, so I'm thankful for them. So right before the Commission announced that they were yet again postponing just a month ago or so, um, we had received an email from one of the only young people on the commission uh, that said the, some of the commission members would like to meet with you to talk about um, the announcement that's coming. Um, and so we were looking forward to that. We thought, okay, maybe they'll listen to us again. Um, joke was on us that morning of our meeting, there was the announcement sent out. The general conference has yet again been postponed to 2022 and for the same time, so the beginning of the academic semester. So we met with the commission members and among all of the grievances that we listed um, was this idea of, because um, Anne Jacob is also a certified candidate serving out on the West Coast. And so while we were in this meeting with Bishop Bickerton, Kim Simpson, the chair of the commission um, and John, who is a young person on the commission, we said, well, what about young people? What about these young people that are currently certified candidates? And now two years later are still supposed to be delegates elected for the 2020 conference because, and I'm sure Tom and Ian will pick up on this later, so I won't get into it yet. Um, this is the 2020 general conference. It's postponed. It's not a new one. It's not a 2022 conference. Um, and so what about these young delegates who there's so many of us, I know of at least 12 people, um, general conference or general conference reserve, who would not be able to be delegates anymore if, if they don't go with this letter. Um, and so 
in this meeting with the commission members, I said, well, what will happen to us? And they said, honestly, we haven't thought about this. So we'll look into it. And Bishop Bickerton gave me his solemn promise to look into it. And so I'm going to meet with him in possibly this week. Um, but before we get there, we had, I, I said, who are two polity wizards that I know? Because I don't want to leave these people to their own devices. I want to develop, you know, a clear plan of why this should be allowed and send it to the commission so that they're not going in because they have extra work. They have two more conferences to plan now. So what are all of the tools? What's the argument? And let's give this to them so that they have the argument clearly in front of them. And that's where these two wizards came in. JJ is too kind in calling me a wizard. Um, I'm a ranger. Uh, for the record, whenever I play D and D and have been since I was like eleven, um, I'm, I'm bard, so I get that. Yeah, I'm not that good actually outside of ranger. And five E has really helped my ranger game because all sorts of bonuses. Anywho, nice. um, so with with the question that that was before us, we um, part of the part of the issue is that. From a pure polity perspective, the Book of Discipline, this is not expected at all, right? Like, it's not like this is someone's fault that they didn't see this coming, right? Um, and also, from a polity perspective, so much of the Book of Discipline, because it is technically rewritten almost entirely every four years, there can be... Um, parts of the book of discipline that remain from decades past that don't actually line up uh, perfectly with other aspects of the discipline. And that generally gets identified when emergencies arise and when, um, when big questions arise. Um, the Judicial Council frequently functions to solve some of these questions, um, but the Judicial Council is uh, an appellate uh, review uh, an appellate judiciary. They reveal they review appeals, which means something has to actually happen before they look at it. So this is not a question that could be taken to the judicial council. This is a question that would have to be considered before the conference even took place. Because the last thing we wanted to do, and and I think I speak for all three of us here, the last thing we wanted to do is for something to happen that general conference something major and something important to happen at general conference and it get completely negated and nullified because no one had thought of this question beforehand regardless of what that something is or what that collection of some things are um we didn't want it nullified so we had to identify a question um and had to identify that the general commission was uh, the appropriate body to consider this question the question that we identified was um really Technically, it's been laid out uh, much more understandably, but technically uh, our question was, may a person serve as a lay delegate to a session of the general conference that has been postponed if they, having been duly qualified and elected from the laity of an annual or missionary conference, have been commissioned as an elder or deacon and elected to provisional membership in the same annual conference of their election in the time elapsed between the regularly scheduled general conference session and the postponed general conference session. It was really important to us to use this language of postponed 
um, because that's the language that the commission uses, but also because this is a word, postpone, that does not appear in the book of discipline anywhere. Like, like open up your PDF book of discipline and run it through a, run it through a search and that word's not showing up. Wow. Um, yeah. So it's, so again, this is, this is just something we're not prepared for and we need these, these questions answered. Um, and JJ, I think has, has uh, already said how the timing becomes more important uh, because it's crunched for people who are in the ordination process. There are some people um, who have been certified candidates for uh, a number of years and it's time. God has called them to service and uh, it, they are prepared uh, to, to enter into a new stage of ministry. Um, and and this, is, this is time for them to work with their conference and do that. But the general commission in using this postponed language, um, and this is where Ian, I think, got really excited in, in writing this, the general commission in using this postponed language decided to be wonky with time uh, or, or wibbly wobbly timey wimey in the words of Dr. Who and say that whatever happens in whenever it happens, that general conference will be called 2020, regardless of if it happens in 2022 um, or not. So uh, that's, that's why we were so precise with that language and where our concern really came up was, as JJ said, the time for people to become uh, commissioned and to move into new relationships as clergy in the denomination gets really, really tight. And this was a, uh, a question that we just thought we could help out with. So I have, I have two questions that come up out of that explanation. Um, the first question, which is something that I 100,000% should know and do not. Um, so if you are, for our listeners who haven't or who aren't in the ordination process in the United Methodist Church. Um, you go through basically a year of being a certified candidate where you are discerning what, um, certified candidate for ordination ministry, where you're discerning what, what type of ordination really fits what you wanna do. Well, well, um, sorry, not, not, just, uh, not just one year, but you can be a certified candidate for up to 12 years. Yeah, so you, there, there's actually a long wiggle room with that. If you're, if you are fast tracking the process, it has to be at least a year, right? In all annual conferences, um, and then after that year of certified candidacy is completed, you then have the option to basically sit for like provisional boards to become a provisional elder or a provisional deacon. Uh, some annual conferences have you being there for two years, some for three. I, I don't know that anybody does anything more than three, but like the Western North Carolina conference, you're provisional for three years. Whereas the North Carolina conference, you're provisional for two. So I could have just hopped over to the other end of the state and changed my stars. Um, but so uh, is a provisional member considered clergy? Because you cannot be elected as a clergy delegate when you're a provisional member of an annual conference. You have to be in full connection. So anybody who's provisional cannot serve as a delegate to a general conference. Is that correct? Correct. So provisional membership means you are a provisional member of the annual conference. Um, that is a status for clergy that is distinct from associate membership or membership in full connection. Membership in full connection is the old, old, old Wesleyan phrase. 
Um, and that meant that means that you are fully connected to the conference. You have full uh, voice and vote uh, on parliamentary matters and on disciplinary matters. Um, you get to wear a pretty stole. Yeah. Liturgically, not actually connected to your status in the annual conference, but you know, um, the the question of provisional magic. Magic you become magic. That's really what it is. Is you get to become yeah. magic. The polity wizard really comes in there. The question of is a provisional member clergy yes because how you become clergy in the united methodist understanding of church how you become clergy is through your commissioning by god for ministry um, so when one is elected to provisional membership that is an act of the annual conference in changing a person's relationship to the authority of the annual conference that election to provisional membership happens concurrently as one's approval to be commissioned by the bishop on behalf of God for the ministry to which they have been called either as an elder or a deacon. Oh, I, 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 I want to spend 10 years unpacking all of that, but that's, that's good and clear and concise. So really the only people that we, that you would need to be concerned about with this letter are people who are certified candidates wanting to move into provisional status. Correct. Because they would be moving into clergy. Right. Because they're moving into clergy and provisional. One of the limitations on provisional membership is that provisional members are not allowed to vote on constitutional matters and general conference frequently considers constitutional matters nor are they allowed to vote on the status of other clergy's relationship to the annual conference. Only full connection clergy can vote on the status of relationship. So um, yeah, the only people who get really concerned in this letter are people moving from certified candidate, which is a lay position, into provisional membership and commissioned ministry. Do you think this is why our Methodist ancestors envisioned when uh, we had the big fight over lay representation at conferences? Like, I, just I mean, I'll, wonder. I'll just I'll just say, as someone who grew up in in um, an inheritor of the Methodist Episcopal Church South, which was the first of the Methodist movements to include laity in general conference votes. Um, no, because the reason that laity were first included was because most of the Methodist Episcopal Church South had been killed in the Civil War, and they needed wow. people to vote at general conference. The, the laity, uh, laity begin to get the vote about the same time that the suffragette conversation happens in full force nationally. Um, take us back to the last time I was on the podcast, and we talked about the influence of Methodist women on the formation of uh, American society. Um, but in the South, one of the, the major things that happened was the absolute decimation of the clergy um, in the Methodist Episcopal Church South. And uh, the rise of the laity um, was partly due to the practicality of we've got to have people to vote on these things. Like the Tennessee Annual Conference lost something like 70% of their clergy membership in the what? Civil War. I mean, imagine going to annual conference which keep in mind, annual conference was still only a clergy gathering, right? Imagine going to annual conference one year and there are a hundred of you there. And imagine going back six years later and there are 30 of you there. And you were asked now to make the same decisions, to staff the same pulpits, 
many of which are also decimated. You are asked to make the same financial decisions. You are asked to continue institutions. Um, so there is a practicality in including laity that begins in the South that expands over the next 60 years, 70 years, until 1939 when it becomes Methodist practice. Um, once the Methodist Episcopal Church, the Methodist Episcopal Church South and the Methodist Protestant Church come back together. Yeah, I was, uh, the impression that I got from the polity overview that I got in seminary was that like the uh, laity representation was a, um, of like a stipulation that the Methodist Protestants put on the Methodist Episcopals, but no, there's actually some some precursor for this. That's fascinating. Um, so my other question is, why do they keep on using the language of postponed instead of just saying rescheduled? Like, yeah, is that, there that was my that was my it? question too? I I don't mean to interrupt you, John. I'm sorry. I just wanted to echo that because that's that's as you guys are talking about. It seems like the whole argument hinges on this sort of bizarre decision to to make this non-discipline language official and so my first thought because i'm um cynical is 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 this like is this incompetent i shouldn't put it that way is, is this is this unthinking some stuff on their part or did they use this language for a purpose that you guys are now exploiting <laughs> How much of this is spy stuff? That's really what I need to know. <laughs> um, so you're you're absolutely right. The 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 Commission on the General Conference and uh, the Council of Bishops, which is uh, uh, the Council of Bishops as well, are uh, basically invented uh, a new term uh, outside of the discipline process. Uh, a new category of general conference, uh, the the postponed general conference. Um, they did this without any action of the general conference because the general conference never considered this uh, before. Um, and I think um, it's it's important to know that general conference, you know, people just don't show up to general conference. Uh, there is a timeline regarding uh, things that are supposed to happen before the general conference, and there are. There are dates and, and deadlines, um, part of that. Um, and so as I was talking with some, some folks on the, the commission last year, um, uh, one of the biggest, one of the concerns they had was, because uh, they, had, they had just printed and, and sent out the um, Advanced Daily Christian Advocate uh, volumes uh, one and two which has all of the proposed legislation in it for the, uh, that the general conference would have considered in 2020. The Daily uh, Christian is, Advocate is our magazine and newspaper whenever general conference is happening. Right. So the advanced Daily Christian Advocate is the advanced magazine and newspaper. It's the one that comes before. It's the prevenient right. one. The prevenient. <laughs> okay. I am, I'm really grateful that we don't call it the prevenient Daily Christian Advocate. I, I think that'd be the only choice. Like, I'd be like, we have to call it that. The Where's the super? That'd be my other one. The super Christian advocate. Oh, yes. You know, yes. We have like. to call it the preventing because we have to be very fancy in our Wesleyan theology and say it's the preventing grace. It's the preventing daily Christian advocate, which would make me happiest. Um, <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, anyway, there there is a real expense with that. And they had just made that expense. 
Um, and uh, the discipline says that uh, petitions and resolutions that are sent to the Commission on the General Conference uh, 230 days before the General Conference opens um, have to be printed in the Advanced Daily Christian Advocate uh, that is sent out to all of the delegates um, in the for the General Conference ahead of time. Um, and so the, the cynical side of me says that the, the Commission on the General Conference did not want to accept new petitions, uh, did not want to print a new advanced uh, daily Christian advocate. Uh, You're going to disenfranchise delegates over printing costs? Is this what this comes down to? <laughs> uh, that's the start of it. That's the start of it. So they created they created this this category of general conference called the special uh, the not the special the the postponed session a special session exists this is not a special session of the general conference this will be a postponed session of the general conference um, so that the uh, the original deadline two hundred and thirty days before uh, April twenty whatever twenty twenty um, that was the deadline to send petitions and resolutions to the general conference uh, for 2020, and they are not moving that deadline uh, so that they don't have to print a new ADCA. Um, there is another uh, more interesting uh, requirement in the, the, in the discipline uh, regarding the, the dates of when delegates to the general conference have to be elected. Um, uh, the discipline says that uh, it's really not, a, it's, it's a very wordy sentence, but my understanding of it is that basically delegates can't be elected to the general conference any earlier than two years before the general conference meets is, is how that works. So for, for the general, for the 2020 general conference, um, you, you would have to have those elections in 2019 or 2018. Most annual conferences do it in 2019. Um, However, we are now getting to the point when general conference is gonna happen in 2022, that is more than two years uh, has, will have passed between uh, when the delegates were elected and when general conference meets. And so rather than making every annual conference elect a new delegation, um, the, the guidance has said that, no, no, this, because this is a postponed general conference, because time doesn't exist and the delegates will enter the the arena on uh, uh, August 2022, and it will be like it's May 2020. Um, it will be the same uh, delegation. Uh, so this that so those are those are two examples of of how the the Commission on the General Conference um, has already used its uh, extraordinary powers um, surrounding logistics for General Conference. Um, to change uh, and kind of rule by 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 fiat almost, and say this is this is what we're doing. The the general conference doesn't have any say in it. Uh, the commission is making these calls at this point. Um, and so what JJ, Tom, and I are asking them to do is to use those same powers that they already have uh, to say, look, we have at least twelve young delegates, this is a justice issue, right? Um, who were elected in, in 2019 or 
at the earliest 2018 um, and feeling a, a call to ministry. They, they've gone through some processes and maybe they're, they're now commissioned or maybe by, by 2022, they will be commissioned or they expect to be commissioned. Um, we, we are asking you to use those same powers that you have already used in the past to enfranchise these young delegates who were elected by the annual conferences, who their laity like uh, very likely knew that they were candidates for ministry. Um, it's not something that just pops up out of nowhere. <laughs> um, and I would, uh, I think that perhaps it's unfair to say this, but there, I think there's a disproportionate number of young delegates in general who, if you are taking the time to, to go through all of this United Methodist uh, general conference crap, like you have a vested interest in the delegation, you are likely on the path towards professional ministry anyways. Um, and so this is just a way to, um, just for a postponed session, like this wouldn't be changing any of the rules uh, for, for regular or special sessions, but uh, for this unprecedented time to do something unprecedented. Um, JJ, Tom, is that, is that a fair? Uh, yeah, I think, I think one of the things that um, is really important to with this postponed language um, is there questions have risen about all sorts of delegates and ability to serve um, because there, there are, I mean, people who have died in a pandemic that's been going on in the world and is the reason we're postponed, right? What do you do when someone's elected to serve on a delegation but has died? Um, either in the pandemic or or otherwise? Or what do you do with someone who's elected to serve on a delegation and is no longer a United Methodist or is no longer a clergy person in ministry? Um, and the Book of Discipline has procedures for, for these questions because these questions don't entail a change of status from lay member of a local congregation to clergy member of an annual conference. And so not only, Ethan, are you uh, right in noticing that this whole thing seems to hang on the word postponed and the theme of postponement that Ian has like very well and clearly articulated, not only does it hang on that, it hangs on how postponement affects one particular type of delegate that is not generally accounted for. Um, and so, yeah, I think, I think, Ian, that's exactly how I would have described it. Um, one of the things, and JJ can speak to this a lot better, um, I think, because of the, the organizing uh, experience that you've had with young delegates, uh, one thing I think that is important to keep in mind, too, for some young delegates who are moving from lay status into clergy status, um, this is also a question of financial justice and of health justice um, for people who um, have, especially, uh, I know when I was in seminary, uh, a lot of us turned 26 the year that we were graduating to get our MDiv. And that in the United States uh, is the year that you go off of your parents' insurance. 
uh, for health insurance and for people who are, you know, leaning on uh, and planning for graduating with an MDiv, getting commissioned in June at annual conference, beginning an appointment in July, um, that could be how they have planned on paying for healthcare. Uh, and as United Methodists, we say very unequivocally uh, in the book of resolutions and, and in the book of discipline that uh, health care is a human right and that universal health care is what Christians should be striving for. Um, it's a financial issue. It's a financial justice issue for people who um, have been serving in congregations or people who have been students and who are uh, lining up their first appointments and getting ready to serve um, because of how conferences handle clergy salaries, uh, that could be a huge difference, especially for a young person with a family. That difference between uh, an appointment as a commissioned and provisional member of the annual conference versus uh, an appointment as a licensed local or as a, a supply pastor, a lay supply pastor, that could be uh, the difference between meals that get put on a table for children uh, in, the, in the parsonage family or not. Um, so I don't know, JJ, what all the demographic is with who you've talked to, but I, that was one thing that was in the back of my mind too, was who these people generally are, as Ian pointed out, the people who are invested in the church deeply. Like you don't convince a 20-year-old to run for general conference just because they happen to show up on the day that their local SPRC was selecting their annual conference member for clergy equalization numbers. Right. Yeah. This is something, this is something that's so deep in the polity and then so separated from most people in the pews that like, of course you have to know, you have to know this whole process and have to be planning on it and intentional for it. So yeah. JJ, tell us about these young clergy. Tell us about what's going on with this. Yeah. Um, you know, we only have some informal polls on Facebook at this point, but, and on Twitter. So, so far I have um, between 10, I said 10 earlier, that was my safe estimate, 10 to 12. Um, but now it, it it's probably, you know, if I took everyone that's messaged me between 10 and 15 young people who are general conference delegates or general conference reserve. And, you know, at a time and a conference when each vote counts so much. I mean, the traditional plan passed by only a handful of votes um, last time. So, you know, 10 votes even or 15 votes could make a real big difference in the big decisions that we have coming up. Um, and I, like Tom said, you know, there's, there's the justice issue here of, okay, you know, waiting to become, moving from certified into ordination uh, or commissioning Right. That's there's a lot of different things that are a part of that and, and healthcare and, and having the benefits of that counting towards your years of service in the church. Um, and so having to put that off really puts young people at a disadvantage. And also, you know, I was talking with a lay person in Florida um, and he was explaining to me. Um, and I think, you know, this is one thing that I want to be conscious of as I'm, um, you know, carrying on this conversation of yes, I wanna make sure that this particular group of people um, doesn't lose their place, is also, you know, beyond this conference, we have to redefine and reimagine the role of lay people. Because if, if, you know, for now we're saying that 
lay, you know, most of the lay people that are part of general conference are certified candidates, many of them are, and are wanting to be pastors, then why don't we have a different role there? Why don't we have a different way to represent young people that are interested in ministry? And and why are we taking out of the voice of lay people who are committed and called lay people to general conference? And so this, I mean, that really opened up the way that I'm approaching this conversation. Um, and, and so this lay person, the lay leader in Florida, Derek Scott said, you know, I'm, I'm behind you. I'm 100%, I want you all to be represented there. And I want you to make this part of the conversation going forward, that you, Ian and Tom, would keep this in the front of your minds, that we really do need to reevaluate the way that we view lay people. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of possibilities out there. I like that. I like that a lot. And I, I Ian and I talk about this a lot, about um, w- what it means to be called to ordain ministry and what it means to be called to be a lay person. Uh, and Ethan and I have talked a lot of the podcast, too, about... Um, I don't know what, how we think as licensed local pastors, how we kind of had to think of this job because we don't have that, um, not, we don't have that buy-in. We don't have the ethos. We don't have the whole, the whole shebang that comes along with being in the club of being ordained elders. You know, we're not part of that part of the, the annual conference. And I, I, like, I just think that Methodism would really benefit from thinking about laity as much more involved people instead of like, instead of making the discipleship pipeline, a pipeline that ends in ordained ministry, because we all know that ordained ministry is not the full end of, um, of the discipleship, uh, that we're called to. That's not what holiness looks like entirely. Um, so, so we wrote this letter. Y'all wrote this letter. I say we, I showed up partway through one session and wave. So I think I count. Um, but so y'all wrote this letter to the commission on the general conference and they, I heard from Ian did not care to make an exception for people who are uh, getting commissioned. So they just said to use backup, the, the reserve delegates. It's the same as if they died, they were, we're not able to use those delegates anymore. Is there, um, well, how do y'all feel about that? Give us the response to that. And then kind of what happens next from that? I assume you don't feel good. Uh, so, so JJ is the one who's been like the, the point person, the, the communications, uh, like he's, uh, he's been in these meetings and been in these conversations. So uh, JJ, why don't you, start. Yeah. um, And so there's been all along, like I said, there's miscommunication among members of the commission. No one seems to know what decisions they've made. Um, And so after I, we all sent this letter to Bishop Bickerton, Kim Simpson, uh, and the young delegate, uh, young member of the commission, John Hiller. Um, It was silence for a week. uh, And then I got an email back from John Hiller that said the commission and the executive committee of the commission and the council of bishops executive committees met uh, and they decided that we're going to stick with the precedent that we have, um, that there is a way to do this um, and that these delegates, if your status changes, will be ineligible, which first of all, there's no precedent because as Ian and Tom already said, this is the first postponed conference ever. Um, Second of all, After that email, uh, I, of course, then email Bishop Bickerton to say, hey, I'd love to talk more with you sometime since I haven't heard from you. And he responded very quickly um, that that's actually not what happened. Um, So we have two conflicting stories. His story is that that's um, that was the members 
understanding of what happened. But what Bishop Bickerton is currently doing is he has a small team together looking into this and he's um, consulting with the chancellor to get a determination looking at past judicial council rulings. Um, and so Bishop Bickerton, the chancellor and a small team are working to see the feasibility of our letter. Um, and then we'll get back to us later this week. The chancellor of the commission on the general conference, is that who the chancellor is? Okay, I just had not heard that term before. I didn't know if it was chair. I, I don't know what all these names are. Uh, so, so I guess these delegates are kind of stuck in limbo now is where we're at with it. Um, boy, what a wonky thing, you know? Um, and and it, it seems to me, so, so let me take a step back and ask kind of a politics question. So I, being naive, would assume that most of these younger delegates would be delegates that would want to vote for inclusion, LGBTQ inclusion in the church. And if they are not serving, then there's a chance that some of the reserve delegates are people who would not necessarily agree, uh, who, would, who would not support inclusion. Maybe, maybe not. It just depends on how each delegate was, delegation was elected. Um, so is like, is there a chance that people are going to accuse y'all of playing politics with this? Um, or is, in, and is the politics a consideration in terms of what might come before the general conference? Or, or are we really trying to like set a precedent and kind of make a bigger change? Is it something that's limited to this general conference or is it something that we hope is gonna change things in the future? Thoughts? So I'll let Ian and JJ talk about uh, the politics side of this, since they're both on delegations, and um, I, uh, I study delegations uh, <laughs> as a as somebody who's really concerned with uh, United Methodist um, ecclesiology. Um, as, a, as a delegation anthropologist, yeah, <laughs> somebody who really is concerned with United Methodist ecclesiology um, and with teaching and preparing and forming future United Methodist clergy and theologically educated laity. Um, I'm less concerned about possible political outcomes and possible uh, votes going the way that I think they should go and that I want them to go. Um, and I'm way more concerned with us trying to articulate as a church who we are and who we include in our decision making and how we understand that process of decision-making to be a partnership with God. And so for me, um, I, I approach polity as our practical ecclesiology, as our, our practiced ecclesiology. Um, and for me to see, uh, to see moments of um, incoherence is an opportunity to more coherently uh, express who we understand ourselves to be as the people of God called to be uh, and become the church. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Do you want to jump in with the politics side of things with the, with the more cynical side of things after that, that beautiful statement? <laughs> I need uh, you all to know that I'm like going to explode from my cynicism because <laughs> I'm trying not to just, just pour it all out on all of you. Um, Ian is used to it. Uh, but but like every, this is the second time we've had Tom on and I try not to do it to Tom the first time and I did okay and I definitely <laughs> don't want to do it to JJ like like JJ just said oh, JJ's like this is the first time I've ever met you and I'm like 
yeah, that's right, isn't it? It is the first time you ever <laughs> met me, you know? And so I'm trying not to just be like, they're, you know, they invented a new reality in order to have their way. And then when somebody was like, hey, if you guys want to play into this new reality, we should probably do this. And they go, no, you know, like, like it's just, it's, it, it's either, it's either total incompetence or, you know, malignant, you know, it, it, it's one of the two. Um, or laziness, I guess, even though I don't believe in laziness. And that's the thing. Like, I don't even know what to do. I, would, I wouldn't say that you that you successfully held off your cynicism the last time I was here. I'd like to think that I effectively disarmed you. Oh, okay. At the end of it, if I remember correctly, you said, well, I guess I look forward to reading Stu Hockey again. <laughs> I, you know what? I just re-listened to that uh, episode, and, and I, actually, I actually remember saying, well... I guess I'll have to read Suraki, <laughs> which is well, not like, quite the same, but I know what you're saying. I'm yeah. sorry, Ian, Ian, lay it on us. I, yeah, Ian, give us the, give us the measured kind of response to it. Is it, is it, do we, is our cynicism warranted? It do, does the commission on the general conference have an ulterior motive here? Or is it just that this is a complicated thing that we're figuring out together? Um, this is going to sound, uh, this is going to sound really mean. Um, I, I don't think the Commission on the General Conference or the Council of Bishops is smart enough to have an ulterior motive here. Oh. Um, I don't. I don't. Uh, I don't know the 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 breakup of the the Commission on the General Conference. Um, as far as where they, they where they lie on the the inclusion or exclusion spectrum. Um, I know that the Council of Bishops, uh, there is no like real majority on, on either side un unless we uh, get rid of 15 bishops uh, in the US and retire them this year and then the conservatives do have a majority, but that's a, that's a conversation for another pod. Um, and uh, so I don't, I want to believe that like the, the politic of, uh, of inclusion is not weighing in to the commission's decision. Um, JJ might have a, a better sense of, of that from, from your meetings with them. And you might have a better sense of like the, 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 politic break, uh, the, the political breakdown of the uh, delegates who are being affected here. Um, but I, I am sure that it is easy to make that political argument. I have not seen anything come out of the IRD or, or good news or the Western covenant association saying that this is just liberals trying to keep on their, their, their takeover. I think, I think they, they just want to take their toys and go, um, at this point and they have bigger things to worry about than this i think before jj hops in i just want to add one thing too that i think ian you were kind of dancing around but that this general conference is a real general conference it's a full general conference there are so many more things up for debate and question and consideration than just the question of lgbtq inclusion or exclusion and i don't want to say that to like minimize it or negate it but i want to put it in its proper context no delegate can be adequately prepared for general conference 
if they think it's a one issue event mm. going into this thing if they if any delegate clergy lay 78 years old 15 years old if they are approaching this general conference as a one issue we're either going to schism or we're not conference that's woefully unprepared and quite frankly god deserves better than that from the delegates for god's holy church jj snapping listeners for those who (laughs) you can't see us because we're not recording this that way but um yeah so jj tell us a little bit uh, answer kind of the questions that have been left in the air or tell us just your thoughts going forward Yes, well, with my magical crystal ball here, um, and they can't see this <laughs> magical crystal ball that I'm making up. Um, yeah, I uh, echo what both Tom and Ian have said. I think both that the commission doesn't necessarily, isn't thinking that far ahead where there would be necessarily ulterior motives. And it seems to be a real case of disempowerment among commission members. Um, the fact that even mm. the chair of the commission could not answer to us um, how they make these contracts or when they were being made or did not know. And since we had a lawyer on our team of um, young delegates when we were writing and meeting with the commission, you know, they said they couldn't release the dates or tell us if the contracts had been signed because that would change the prices that vendors would give them. And the lawyer on the team right away said, well, wouldn't you have to tell these vendors what dates you're looking for anyway? Uh, and and that just completely took the chair by surprise because I think there's it's it's a real case of disempowerment in the commission. I think no one really knows the full story and no one really is taking thou authority as I love Ian saying and Tom saying all the time, take thou authority. Um, and, and so, yeah, I think, you know, I don't think it's some real malevolent, stuff going on here. I do think it's a lack of imagination and a lack of empowerment. And um, yeah, so I'll be interested to see what happens in this upcoming week uh, with Bishop Bickerton and what he has to say about this. Uh, I will say that like, uh, I've seen it around social media, the the, the letter, JJ published it. Um, and the the biggest resistance that I have seen to it have been from uh, people who are uh, very ardent in the, uh, on on either side of the aisle, uh, proverbial aisle, so to speak, but people who are ardent in the, no, uh, general conference has to be 50% lay and 50% clergy, because that is, uh, that is just how it's done. And, uh, I, I would say to that, yeah, I, that's one of the things I do like about Methodism is that we do, United Methodism, is that uh, the laity do have an equal voice with the, the clergy um, on these uh, denominational issues. Um, and uh, I understand why we do it. Um, I also understand that this is it's been said on this podcast already, this is a wholly unprecedented reality that we're in, where there has uh, never in United Methodist history has there been, has in in our 50 plus years of existence, has the General Conference been postponed? Have we ever anticipated the General Conference needing to postpone uh, because of a, due to a global health pandemic? Um, The argument that laity and and clergy have 
different interests or are vested differently uh, in, in the institution, for me, doesn't hold water. Um, because like I said, if you, are, if you are a delegate, if you are at the point where you are a delegate to the general conference, you care about the institution in one way or the other. Like um, you, you have an agenda uh, regarding the institution of the United Methodist uh, denomination. Um, I, as a layperson, um, when I was a certified candidate for ministry and was uh, a lay alternate delegate and then a uh, full lay delegate to general conference, um, I cared just as much about clergy salaries and clergy pensions and uh, clergy relations as I do now that I am no longer a certified candidate for ministry. Um, I don't, I, you know, I was never commissioned. So I don't know, maybe something magical does happen uh, when the bishop lays their hands on you. But I do not suspect that I would have cared markedly more about all of those things that we say clergy care about more than laity care about um, the moment a bishop would have laid their hands on me uh, to commission me. Um, and I do think that as a, as a lay person, uh, as a lady, we, we do owe it to clergy to care about clergy issues the same way that clergy owe it to us to care about lay issues. And I, I don't see there being a, a disbalance there for a once in a generation pandemic that has totally upended our ecclesiastical structure. I would rather see uh, us include the people who were elected uh, to serve uh, give them full voice and vote. And uh, in the event that we ever have another postponed general conference, we can sort that out. We can uh, move forward planning around and uh, the general conference can decide, okay, do we want this? Do we not want this? But for this one, this has never happened before. Let them serve. I think that's a, that's a good place to end. I like something, a through line that's kind of come through in this, as we've talked is there's, um, there's a really a sense of, of the commission and of people in charge of the general conference being as innocent as doves, but not as wise as serpents. You know, they're, they're only getting half of the, the parable. And I think that's part of um, what, what Ethan and I make, what makes Ethan and I nervous about this is that, um, you know, there are people who are as wise as serpents uh, who are wanting to leave the denomination and are willing to use LGBTQ people as their pawns in order to leave the denomination. And so uh, I, I think we're probably all dealing with some PTSD from the 2019 Special General Conference. Um, but, but we like, we are so used to needing to look for ulterior, ulterior motives so we don't get burned again, that now we're like, oh, well, this is, you know, they're still not making a decision that we, we like, but um, at least it's not malicious at this moment. And, and just since you mentioned the 2019 General Conference, I know of both lay delegates and clergy delegates who, who got there and their mission was just to watch the denomination burn. Right. Um, so it's it's not like clergy are more vested in the survival of the institution than laity are. Like I don't, you care about the institution, you want to see something happen to it, and you want to affect some kind of change. And I don't think laity or clergy status um, affects that uh, one way or the other. And I think if I can um, just offer my 
my parting words from the ecclesiology standpoint. Um, this, I think, is an example of how we've not really articulated quite well <laughs> as United Methodists what our, our doctrine of the church is. Um, we're in the process of that. There are people writing that at the denominational level, um, scholars and, and pastors and lay folk and um, internationally uh, involved conversations. Um, but this letter, and I think the three of us coming together to do this and some of the conversations that have happened on Twitter, even even folks who have disagreed with the letter or who have, uh, or folks who have hopped on and been like, oh, hey, yeah, I know one or two other people who this applies to. Um, this, I think, is an example of how Paul talks about the body needing all of its members. Mm. Um, that one of the things that I would not do particularly well uh, at is sitting on the Commission on General Conference because I'm not that great at like, picking picking my food vendors um and, and i'm not that great at that logistical side of things and quite frankly i'm very thankful that there are people who are good at that and who are able to use that um use those gifts for the furtherance of the reign of god um and i this for me and i think for all three of us has come from our opportunity uh that we've seen as a chance to be a functional member of the body and to help us be a little bit healthier in a time of, of chaos and in a time of, um, of warring within the body uh, against ourselves. I like that. JJ, any last thoughts from you before Ethan signs us off? Oh gosh. Uh, you know, I just, I love, I've loved being on this podcast with you all. I I'm so glad that I know amazing polity wizards because, or Rangers, my bad. Uh, Cause that is not my gift. I had to teach um, him what an Aarakocra was a few weeks ago. The the noble race of Eagles that I encountered in the dungeon a couple of years ago. I still have no idea what that is, but I'm going to go with it. Um, and so, yeah, I, you know, I think as everyone's named there, there's some hurt, there's some pain, there's some, yeah, some real trauma still from the last time we had one of these. Um, and there's some real confusion and there's also hope. And so I'm, I'm going forward, not naively, um, not naively thinking that we have the most competent or the most able commission, but I am going forward hopeful that with, as Tom said, members of the body looking to do their part, you know, that we will build something better together. So that's my hope. I love that. Thank you for letting that be our, our parting word. And thank y'all all for gathering for this, for this time of um, holy conferencing over Zoom. This is good. I feel like I learned a lot. I feel good about it. Ethan, you want to sign us off? Yes. Thank you, everybody, for listening. This has been another episode of What the Hell is a Pastor? We are Ethan and Joe and Ian Um and JJ. We will see you next time. Listeners, there have been updates on this, so check our podcast feed for an updates episode dropping right after this episode, and happy listening.